0: Our God, we are so blessed to know that you are right here this morning in our midst, that you dwell in each of us individually and with us corporately as the church of the living God. We're thankful, Lord, that you're able to be with your people all around the world today as they meet together in worship of you. And Father, we know that in many parts of the world, services are over. Other parts, they are yet to be held. But we know we are one in the Spirit, one as uh, members of the Church of the Living God. And so, Lord, we do pray for your work as it goes on around the world. We would pray, Father, for the service which is being held probably right about now in, in Barcelona and uh, jose and sonia martinez that uh, you will bless their ministry there and the ministry that you are bringing about through them and we pray that work will grow and prosper and that uh, lives will be touched and we trust that that will be true um, wherever your name is being proclaimed this day we pray for the service that is uh, transpiring concurrently that you will bless in the ministry there and throughout our sunday school today Lord, guide us in our, in our study of your Word. Teach us by the power of your Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn to the 26th chapter of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 26. Two weeks ago, we began looking at this particular chapter. I'd like to read the first six verses again this morning, if I may. Exodus 26, beginning at verse 1. Moreover, You shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twisted linen, and blue and purple and scarlet material. You shall make them with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. The length of each curtain shall be twenty-eight cubits, and the width of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be joined to one another, and the other five curtains shall be joined to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set, and likewise you shall make them on the edge of the curtain that is in the outermost in the second set. And you shall make fifty loops in one curtain, and you shall make fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. Loops shall be opposite each other. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold, and join the curtains to one another with the clasps, that the tabernacle may be a unit. We'll stop there for the moment. We're going to read through most of that chapter uh, this morning. And as you read through it, uh, obviously it's probably not something you would sit down and have devotions out of every morning, but it is part of the Word of God. And God has given given it to us, not only because the Hebrews needed to have it at the time he was ministering through Moses, but that we need to know what God did in the past, because it does impact us today. All that God has done is part of a coherent program, a coherent uh, process of, of bringing His church together, of building His, His church. and uh, We have to avoid thinking of those things in the past as being you know antiquated, antique, uh, something that has no relevance to us today, but, but to realize that every part of the scripture is relevant to us today, whether we understand it completely or not at any particular moment in our lives. Uh, God brings these things to understanding, uh, to our understanding uh, more and more fully the longer we walk with Him, particularly if we study the Scripture. Of course, if we don't study the Scripture, uh, then the problem remains. But as we study Scripture, more and more light is shown upon uh, all of these teachings, and we begin to see how they fit together. From the information that is given in this particular chapter, Concerning the size of the curtains and uh, the wooden framework of which the the, uh, tabernacle was made, I think it can be ascertained that the dimensions of the tabernacle were relatively small. Uh, Using conservative interpretation of the cubit, which is fairly common uh, today of 18 inches, we find that the tabernacle was approximately 30 cubits long, which would be about 45 feet, that it was uh, 10 cubits wide, which would be about 15 feet, and 10 cubits high, again 15 feet. Now obviously as we think of those figures, and you compute it out, we're talking about a floor space of only 675 square feet. Now most of us, uh, not to insult anybody today here, but most of us would find 675 square feet a pretty small space to live in. Most of us have houses that are probably at least two or three times that size if we possess a house, even apartments, what, 800, 1,000, 1,200 square feet or, or more. Uh, so what we recognize from this, first of all, is that the tabernacle was not impressive for its size. It was a relatively small tent. It would be about the size of a single wide, 45 foot long mobile home, you know, more or less. A little taller, of course, uh, but that's about what it would uh, approximate. Now, you can imagine if the builders of the great temple complexes of Egypt from which the Israelites had escaped or Mesopotamia had come out here to the desert and they had seen this tabernacle which the Israelis had built, they would have laughed at the Israelites. <laughs> Look at this teeny little thing that you guys have built. You must have a very small God because in the human a way of looking at things, the, the greater the God, the greater must be the physical attributes that uh, are used to express worship of that God. Obviously, the, and you go back and look through the pages of history and you'll discover that the puny little gods, the uh, secondary gods of history, had little shrines and little monuments. The big gods had big temple complexes that were, were built unto them. And so there was a kind of a relationship between the size and the power of the God and, and the size of the monument that was used to worship that particular God. But we're reminded of the words that, that Solomon spoke when he was dedicating the somewhat larger temple 400 years later, when he recognized that the entire heaven, the entire universe cannot contain God, let alone this dinky little temple that he was building. Now, I don't know if it's true of anybody here, but people have expressed the feeling that God is sometimes apparently arrogant. And they get that feeling from the fact that he requests or desires or demands praise. He desires worship. He desires credit for all the good things that happen. You know, from the passage in James, it says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. I don't have any problem with that. In fact, it's obviously true. But many feel that that is an expression of the arrogance of God. In fact, I, I may have mentioned this before. Years ago, when I was doing some study at uh, San Francisco State University, um, one of the professors there made it a very strong point of the fact that he thought that the God of the Old Testament was a very arrogant and irrational God because of his particular understanding of the way God functioned in the Old Testament. A lot of people think that way, because they don't understand the truth of the Old Testament and the true character of God. But that that is a misunderstanding is is reflected, first of all, in the tabernacle. And then, of course, in many other teachings in Scripture concerning the eminence of God, the, the presence of God here Uh, among us. God could have demanded a great temple complex. He could have said to the Israelites, I want you to build me a vast complex here. It is to go from edge of the plain to the edge of the plain. It's to slope up Mount Sinai. He said, he could have said, build this vast complex here, miles in area to represent who I am. After all, the ancients of that day did build vast complexes. The Babylonians, uh, the other Mesopotamians, built these huge ziggurats which, which rose, in some cases, several hundred feet into the air. In fact, the ancient city of Babylon was visible from, for uh, you know, 50 miles away because of this great ziggurat that rose several hundred feet in the middle of the city out there on the plain. Uh, the Egyptians built vast temple complexes. Uh, we have been at Luxor on the Nile River. Uh, near what's called Karnak, and uh, there is a new kingdom complex, which was built more or less about the same time we're talking about here, uh, which is huge. It covers hundreds of acres, big sacred pond, and these huge pylons that go 100 to 150 feet into the air, and big uh, pillars that takes, you know, half a dozen people to reach around, and all of this built to the gods of Egypt to, to reflect their power and their glory. If you've studied much of history, you know, for example, that the Mayas didn't just build single temples, they built whole cities that are sacred complexes. And, and they've been, of course, recently excavated from the jungles, and you go down and see Palenque or, or uh, Chichen Itza or one of the others, and, and you have one temple on the other end, another temple at the other end, and everything in between. It's all a sacred precinct. And, and this whole thing could be a mile square or more. The famous Khmers in Cambodia, built a huge city called Angkor. All that's remaining today is the the specific temple complex called Angkor Wat. But it's considered to be the largest religious building standing in the world today. And it was just part of a sacred city that was built by these people to commemorate the Hindu gods that they worshipped. And so as you think about this, uh, we recognize that if you are human and you think only from human terms, the greater is the temple complex, the greater must be the God. And that's the way people would have thought, but not so concerning the God that we know and the God that the Hebrews knew. Solomon's (laughs) temple would be bigger than the tabernacle and Herod's temple may have been even a little bit larger than Solomon's temple. But even they were dwarfed by temple complexes that were concurrent with them, those of the Greeks and the Romans. The, the whole Acropolis, which rises up in the middle of the city of Athens there, is a sacred precinct that is committed to the numerous gods, mostly Athena, but other gods, too. And in the middle of it, the jewel is the Parthenon. Parthenon was built in the middle of the 5th century during the age of Pericles. And the Parthenon I mean, we're looking at the, the tabernacle here, 675 square feet. The Parthenon covers 23,000 square feet. I mean, the building is 230 feet long, by 100 feet wide, and it's 60 feet high. I mean, it's magnificent even in its ruins today. And that wasn't, by any means the largest of the temples built by the Greeks and of the Romans, by the Romans. And so we, we can understand that uh, it doesn't matter how big a temple you can make, it never going to be big enough to honor the God that we know or the God that the Hebrews knew. The terms pride and arrogance really cannot be applied to our God. But we can use the word humility, strange as that might seem concerning God. Because you remember, if we read in Philippians 2.8, we are told that Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Christ took on the ultimate humility. You know, some of us sometimes (coughs) are humbled (laughs) by stupid things that we do. But Christ, the ultimate humility, coming down from the halls of heaven, the God of gods, the creator of the universe, uh, as great as the universe is and beyond, uh, came down and, and put himself in human flesh to be treated as we know he was treated for those 30 some odd years. That is the ultimate humility of that's possible, I think. But also, we see the humility of God in this, that he is willing to make you and me, as sinful as we are, his temples. You know the passage in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? We're walking temples of the living God. So the size of the temple obviously has absolutely no relationship to the size or the power, the grandeur of the living God. In fact, he can be reflected in the teeniest of things. Crystals. uh, Whatever all uh, that he has made. But there is another truth that's interesting. God is in the process of building a temple for himself that is of incomprehensible size. In 1 Peter 2, we read that of each believer, that's you, and that's me, and all of the believers around the world, are living stones who are being joined together into a great temple from the the first of believers, if Adam and Eve became true believers, which we believe they did, all the way to the last believer before the end of time joining together to form the church universal, the eternal temple of the living God. So Jesus attempted to give us that understanding when he spoke to the woman at the well of Sychar and uh, said that the Jews, yeah, they worship Jerusalem and you worship up here on this mountain, but true worshipers of God worship him in spirit and in truth. And physical size has absolutely no relationship, or physical location has no relationship to one's uh, position before God. If we read on in the 26th chapter, beginning at verse 7, then you shall make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. You shall make 11 curtains in all. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, and the width of each curtain, 4 cubits. 11 cu- curtains shall have the same measurements. And you shall join five curtains by themselves, and the other six by themselves, and shall double over the sixth curtain at the front of the tent. And you shall make fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the first set, and fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost on the second set. And you shall make fifty clasps of bronze, and you shall put the clasps into the loops and join the tent together, that it may be a unit. And the overlapping part that is left over in the curtains of the tent the half half curtain that is left over shall lap over at the back of the tabernacle. And the cubit on the one side and the cubit on the other side of what is left over in the length of the curtain of the tent shall lap over the edges of the tabernacle on one side and the other to cover it. And you shall make a covering for the tent of ram skin dyed red and a covering of porpoise skins above. Now you may not be dramatically blessed by that particular (laughs) passage of uh, scripture. But as we get back to a description specifically of of the tabernacle here, we find that these first 14 verses of this particular chapter describe the four layers of material which covered the tabernacle. This framework had four layers of material that were placed over the top of it. The innermost was of fine linen, so it would have been probably white, cream-color material, that was linked together, as you remember, uh, we read in the first part of it. These two sheets were brought together with, uh, with blue loops along the edge and gold clasps that brought these two big sheets together. And they were first placed over the tabernacle. So they would be on the inside. They would be on the inside of the tabernacle. And then they were, you remember, it said that they were to be embroidered in blue and purple and scarlet along the edges and that they were to be embroidered with cherubim, and skilled workmen were to embroider these cherubim. We talked about that a few weeks back. How would they know what a cherubim looked like? If somebody said to you, draw a cherubim, what would you do? Most of us would draw this kind of a girlish looking figure with wings or something, you know, and uh, does that have anything to do with a cherubim or not? Um, we don't know. But how would they know? Well, We haven't gotten to verse 30 yet, but let me just look at verse 30 here for a moment to jump ahead. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to its plan, which you have been shown in the mountain. To me, that verse says that in the 26th chapter, you don't have all the information that God gave to Moses on the mountain. God, in effect, gave Moses a blueprint and said, this is how this thing is to be made. God empowered the skilled craftsmen to do the job because how would they know what to do? I mean, these guys were a bunch of slaves that came out of Egypt. They hadn't been trained for 100 years in gold working and and embroidery and fine cloth weaving and all this stuff. God had to give them the ability to do the job. I think God's spirit inspired them to know how. And God gave them uh, the the, uh, blueprint of what a cherubim would look like at least as it ought to be embroidered, and as it ought to be shaped on the Ark of the Covenant with with the wings sweeping up over the top of the Ark. I don't think today we have any real accurate knowledge of what that would look like because all of that's disappeared, long gone, and there were no photographers around, you know, taking pictures so that we could see. So we have people attempting to uh, replicate it as best they can. This, this linen inner curtain, you remember, was made in panels that were six feet wide and forty-two feet long. And these six-foot sections were sewn together, five of them, so that you had thirty-foot by forty-two-foot hunk of linen. That's a lot of linen. And, and then two sheets like that had these blue loops along the edge, and then these gold clasps were put in there to hold these two sheets together. Now, why? Why bother? Why don't you just weave a whole thing, 60 feet by 42 feet? Not weave it, but I mean, you know, sew it together. Well, I I think there are some practical reasons. One of the practical reasons was if you do it in two sheets, it's more manageable and easier to carry. Remember, all these Levites have to haul this stuff around with them whenever they move the tabernacle. And I don't know how much a, a piece of linen would weigh that was uh, 60 foot one way and 42 feet the other way. I mean, we're probably not talking about stuff that was as you know, thin as paper. I mean, it's pretty good stuff, I think, <laughs> fairly uh, opaque. But I think there's another factor, and it's not spelled out here, but I was just thinking about this morning, working out all these dimensions, and it, it works out really beautifully. If you take that curtain and hang it as it was supposed to be hung over the tabernacle, which means that you begin at the front edge of the tabernacle with the leading edge of the curtain, and you bring it back over the tabernacle and drop it down through the back. 30 feet in from the front edge was where the Holy of Holies began. The final 15 feet was the Holy of Holies, and then the final 15 feet that dropped to the ground was the remaining 30 feet. So that these gold clasps and that, those blue loops would be right exactly the markers where they would hang the curtain to separate the Holy of Holies never make a mistake as to where exactly it was to be placed, because it was built right into the curtain. It doesn't say that here, but that's what it looks like to me as I figured this out. Now, the curtain, being 42 feet wide, would not quite reach the ground on the two sides the north and south side of the tabernacle. There would be a cubit lacking from reaching the ground on both sides, and probably that was at least in part to uh, keep it from getting too dirty on the two on the two edges but the overlying materials that would be over top of that linen were larger and so the scripture told us as we read this morning that it hung clear to the ground on all sides that is three of the sides and so it would be covered from ground to peak all the way across the tabernacle now in uh, the this embroidered linen which was on the inside was covered by three other layers The first one we read about here in this passage was goat's hair. Now, if you go to the Holy Land today, you will see lots of goat hair tints. The Bedouins over there still live in goat hair tints. And they're almost always black. And so this black felt-like layer was placed over the top of the linen. And then we're told that dyed or tanned ram skin was the next layer put over the felt. And then on the outside was put this porpoise or dugon layer of the Red Sea sea cow, as I mentioned before, which has a waterproof skin. And they still live in the Red Sea today. This was put on the outside. So here we're looking at a tabernacle which was sealed against the weather. I mean, it could pour. Not that it did much in the Sinai, but later on when they'd be transporting this thing into Canaan, it could pour and it's not going to get inside the tabernacle. Because it's completely sealed in there against the weather. But it's also very opaque. I mean, it would have been black as night when the curtains were dropped in the front inside of, uh, of that tabernacle without any light, artificial light. Verse 15. Then you shall make the boards for the tabernacle of Acacia wood, standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of each board, and one and a half cubits the width of each board. There shall be two tenons on each board, fitted to one another, and thus you shall do for all the boards of the tabernacle. And you shall make the boards for the tabernacle 20 boards for the south side. You shall make 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards. Two sockets under one board for its two tenons, and two sockets under another board for its two tenons, and for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north 20 boards. For there 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under one board, two sockets under another board. And for the rear of the tabernacle to the west you shall make six boards. And you shall make two boards for the corners of the tabernacle at the rear. And they shall be double length. Together they shall be complete to its top, to the first ring. Thus it shall be with both of them, and they shall form the corners. And there shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, sixteen sockets, two sockets under one board, and two sockets under the other board. Then you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards of one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards of the other side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle, uh, for the rear side to the west. And the middle bar in the center of the board shall pass through from end to end. And you shall overlay the boards with gold and make rings of gold as holders for the bars. You shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to its plan which you have been shown in the mountain." The uh, translation here of the Hebrew word which is rendered in the passage you just read as boards is probably somewhat misleading. The NIV, which some of you may have, uh, translates the word as frames, and this is probably more accurate an understanding of uh, what we have here. Now, if these, these boards, quote unquote, constitute the three walls of the tabernacle, the two sides and the rear. If they were solid boards, a cubit wide and as tall as the tabernacle is, there would only be little stretches in between the boards where you could see this overlying curtain with all of its beautiful cherubim and embroidered colors and everything else. It would be mostly covered up by all these boards if they were solid boards that went around the tabernacle. We're told here that each of these boards or frames had two tenons, that is protrusions on the bottom uh... which would be lowered into with with silver sockets that they'd be placed into so you have this this uh... eighteen inch wide thing that would be plunked into two holes on, on a baseboard there with silver sockets with these true protrusions plunking in there to give it uh... the place where it would be put and of course that alone wouldn't keep it upright obviously if you have something fifteen feet high just riding on two little sockets down below you've got something that'd be pretty unstable in and of itself and we'll see then what was done to make this thing more rigid. The best description seems to be that what we're talking about here is not a board, but something that might best be imagined like a ladder, a ladder 18 inches wide and 15 feet high. In other words, two boards running up like this and with crossbars in between, forming this framework, so that it would be, you could see through the vast majority of it. You know, just like putting a a large ladder up there and plunking it in down there and having this ladder stick up there and having all these ladders around. That's probably what this looked like. Each of the 20 frames was spaced about 10 inches apart. So you have an 18-inch ladder-like thing, then a space of 10 inches, then another 18-inch ladder-like thing. So what you would have is the ability to see the vast majority of the curtain as it hung down the two sides and in the rear, you'd see more curtain than not, because the wood would only be blocking a very small amount of it instead of large, you know, vast majority of it, which would have been true if these were solid boards. Besides, where would they get a solid board, 18 inches wide, 15 feet high, in the wilderness of Sinai? The acacia trees, out of which they made most of this stuff, some of them were tall enough to get long enough single pieces of wood, but not a wide board because the trees just aren't that big. And so it would have been very, very difficult for them to obtain the wood to do this if it were in solid boards. We're told that each of these frames or ladder-like structures had five gold rings attached to it. So somewhere uh, in the width of it, possibly in the middle, would be five rings, one at the very top, and then equally spaced down towards the bottom were these five gold rings on each one of these, on the inside of the tabernacle. And these rings would have all been attached so that they came out from the board like so, and and you had the circle protruding in the tabernacle. The idea, of course, was that the pole would then be passed inside the tabernacle through all of these rings. Five poles would be passed through these rings, and, and these Uh, poles would give the the tabernacle rigidity. We're told that one of the poles, the center pole, had to go from one end to the other as a single pole. Now again, it probably was screwed together in places because where would you get a 42-foot-long pole Uh, from trees that weren't even 42-foot high? So obviously they had to be screwed together somehow for the single one that ran clear through from one end of the tabernacle to the other. The others could then just cover so many of these ladder, Things apiece. But these poles gave to the framework rigidity as it stood there, placed in these sockets in the ground. Now, consider this. These ladder like frames were all to be gold sheeted. The rings were gold. The poles of acacia wood, which passed through the rings, five bars from 15 foot up, all the way down to, what, 3 foot above the ground, or wherever the last pole was. They were all gold-sheeted. So imagine yourself inside the tabernacle. The only light is the menorah, the seven-branched candelabra, or lampstand, with these oil lamps blazing at the top. And as as this was blazing, you look around, and that light is reflected off of all the walls. It's reflected off the table of the showbread. And later on, we'll see that there was also an altar of incense. It was reflected off that. You had this golden glow bouncing off all the walls, and then in between was this linen sheet with these cherubim. And overhead, this cher- the cherubim features all embroidered in the top. I mean, the thing must have been a glorious sight. And who saw it? Was the congregation invited to come in and sit down and, and sing? <laughs> no, only the priests went inside the tabernacle. So the priests were the ones who were invited to come in and look at, it was small, but it was glorious. Gold reflecting uh, from all sides and, and the beautiful colors of the cherubim and the embroidery of the curtain all around. It would have been a delightful, you know, sensuously delightful place to go. Verse 31, You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material, and fine twisted linen. And it shall be made with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia, overlain with gold, their hooks also being of gold, on four sockets of silver. And you shall hang up the veil under the clasps, and shall bring in the ark of the testimony there within the veil. And the veil shall serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the holy of holies. And you shall put the mercy seat on the Ark of the Testimony and uh, in the holy of holies. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand opposite the table on the side of the tabernacle towards the south. You shall put the table on the north. And you shall make a screen for the doorway of the tent of blue, purple, scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver. And you shall make five pillars of acacia for the screen, and overlay them with gold, their hooks also being of gold, and shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. Again, where did they get all this bronze and gold? Where did they get all this material? Well, they got it from Egypt, remember? They asked, each man asked his neighbor for gold and other precious things, and the Egyptian says, take it, just get out of here before we all die. And so they they went out of Egypt, as God said, despoiling the land. And then their free will offering of that which they possessed was what was used to build this tabernacle. The rear third of this 45 foot long structure, the rear third, the final 15 feet, was veiled off, screened off as the Holy of Holies. It was 15 foot high, 15 foot deep, 15 foot wide. So it was a cubicle area, 15 by 15 by 15, in which the Ark of the Covenant was to be placed. Now, as I mentioned to you before, the demarker of that would have been the point where the two overlying linen sheets were joined. And all those gold clasps, 50 of them, went along the edge of that. That would have been the marker of where to hang this veil. and Gold-covered wooden posts were placed on the two sides to support the pole or whatever went across the top which, from which the veil hung there in the middle or at the rear third of the Holy of Holies. The veil was to be made of fine linen just as the covering of the tabernacle was, and it was to be emblazoned with cherubim even as the overlaying covering had been. Right outside the veil, we're told, to the south, Inside the holy place, not the holy of holies, was to be placed the menorah, and on the north side, the table of the showbread. And later on, we're going to discover that the golden ark of incense was placed just outside the veil, approximately central in the, the holy place. Now, the entrance to this whole thing, the whole entrance to the tabernacle, was screened off by another veil or curtain which was hung, the same size as the inner veil. Fifteen by fifteen, this other veil hung at the entranceway to the tabernacle. And this particular veil was also to be made of the same material. It was to have blue, purple, and scarlet embroidery, but no cherubim are mentioned whatsoever. Which means that overall, the people of Israel, looking at the tabernacle, would not see the images of the cherubim, because none would be visible on the outside of the tabernacle. This curtain, the first one, through which the priests would pass to get inside the tabernacle, is referred to in Scripture as the first veil. And the inner veil, which separated the Holy of Holies from the Holies, is called the second veil. Turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 2. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread, this is called the holy place. And behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which was called the Holy of Holies. Now, if you just keep it open there for a minute to that ninth chapter, the priests would regularly pass through the first veil. That's how they got into the holy place, the outer two-thirds of the tabernacle. They had to go in there on a periodic basis to maintain the menorah, for one thing. I mean, the oil was constantly burning. They had to keep refurbishing the oil uh, to keep the menorah burning. And weekly, they were to replace the showbread. The showbread was to be in there, uh, and every week, they were to replace, put in new bread for the showbread. And then, later, we will discover they also had to burn incense on the altar of incense. So these things had to be maintained on a regular basis. So the priests were passing through the first veil on a relatively regular basis. But the second veil separated sinful man from the very real presence of the holy God. And the second veil could only be penetrated one time a year by one person. And that was the high priest. If you look at verses 6 and 7 of the same ninth chapter of Hebrews, we read, Now when these things had been prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The second veil represented the fact that sinful man was separated from the holy God because of his sin. And the only way that veil could be penetrated was on the basis of atonement. Therefore, on one day a year, it's called even today Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, on that one day during the course of the year. The high priest was allowed to enter through that second veil in order to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant for himself and for all of those believing Israelites who at that hour were worshiping and praying to God as this was being performed. It was not a blanket salvation for everybody type thing. The high priest goes in there and sprinkles blood on it and everybody called an Israelite was automatically forgiven of his sin. No, just like today. Just because we go to church doesn't make us a true believer. Those Israelites who believed in what God had said and what the priest was doing and were imploring God for mercy were the ones for whom that blood was sufficient for atonement from their sin. As we know, the second veil remained in place in the tabernacle and it remained in place in the temple, Solomon's temple, and then later in the second temple, that veil remained in place until one event occurred. That, of course, was the moment that Jesus said, it is finished and gave up his spirit to God. At that moment, the scripture tells us that veil was ripped in half from top to bottom by God himself. And it's told in many places in the gospel. But if we read in Mark, chapter 15, verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the tradition is, the tradition is that the veil of Herod's temple was as thick as a man's hand, that it was nearly four inches thick, which means there isn't a group of humans on earth that could have torn it. But God just split that thing from top to bottom at the moment that Christ breathed his last. The veil, of course, is very important for its symbolism. How did God manifest himself? Or did he manifest himself in the second temple? Was God present in the Holy of Holies of Herod's temple as he had been in the tabernacle? We don't know that. Because the scripture does not talk about Herod's temple except to make reference to it in the Gospels. It was built before Christ was born. It was a renovation of Zerubbabel's temple, which the scripture tells us was built back at the end of the 6th century before Christ. How did, I mean, how did God manifest himself in the Holy of Holies of that particular temple? The scriptural the the last scriptural reference to the Ark of the Covenant is found in 2 Chronicles, and it refers to the days of Josiah. Now, Josiah lived from 640 to about 609 B.C., so in the 7th century before Christ. And that's the last time the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned in Scripture. It was apparently lost, taken, destroyed, hidden, whatever happened to it, during the final attack upon Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar II, which occurred in 587-586, and at that time Solomon's temple was destroyed, and we assume the ark was gone at that time. Now we knew that we know the ark would, was gone. Let me read a verse to you from Jeremiah 3:16. In Jeremiah 3, verse 16, it says, "And it shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land," declares the Lord. They shall say no more, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And it shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they miss it, nor shall it be made again. Jeremiah was predicting the moment the Ark would be gone. And it certainly happened during his lifetime, because he lived at the time Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar II. And so he tells us that it will be gone, it will not be missed, and it will not be made again. So what was in the Holy of Holies of Herod's temple? Well, in Spanish, the word is nada, (laughs) nothing. It was empty. It was an empty place inside the Holy of Holies of Herod's temple in the days of Jesus Christ himself. There is no record anywhere in Hebrew writings or scripture of the existence of the ark after the moment we have just talked about here all the way from the time of zerubbabel's reconstruction of the temple which occurred about 517 bc until the destruction of herod temple in AD 70. what's that that's nearly 600 years you have a temple called the second temple which was built small by zerubbabel rebuilt much larger by herod and there is no ark there is an empty holy of holies. Was God in that holy of holies? Scripture doesn't say. My thought is probably not. According to Josephus, who was a first century Jew who had surrendered to the Romans and became a historian of uh, the Jews, he, he wrote a work called The Antiquities of the Jews. And in it, he describes the day in 63 BC when the great conquering Roman general, Pompey the Great, with his officers, came to Jerusalem, and they walked inside the temple, and they went through the curtain into the Holy of Holies. And he was awestruck by the fact it was empty. He thought some hideous, you know, statue would be in there, because that's what it was in most temples. But it was, it was empty, and he was so awestruck by the thing that the passage does mention a menorah, does mention the table of the showbread, but mentions no Ark of the Covenant. But he was so awestruck by it that when he left, Josephus said he told the priests to cleanse the temple from his unpious intrusion and to continue their worship as it had been before. The Jews, of course, were horrified. And they were absolutely certain that Pompey the Great would probably just roll over and die at any moment. In fact, if the Ark of the Covenant had been in there, he'd have been a dead man on the spot. But he walked around, no problem at all. The Jews were certain this guy would die a horrible death very, very soon for his arrogant act, but the guy lived another 15 years, and 10 of those years he ruled the Roman Republic. He would die a horrible enough death, but nevertheless he did live for 15 years. Whether or not God manifested himself in the empty of holy holies in the second temple, the existence of the veil still symbolized the gulf that stood between sinful man and a holy God. And that is why it was so symbolic and important to us that when Christ said, it is finished, that God ripped that veil because now there was eternal, forever, once and forever atonement for all of us so that we can stand in the presence of the living God without condemnation for there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's finish with Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected, that means that's our eternal standing. Our eternal standing is perfection. For all time those who are sanctified, the the Greek word really means in the process of being sanctified. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are who are being sanctified, and that is you, and that is me. If we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, and we don't have to be worried and concerned about going in, to, you know, the priest going into the through the veil one time a year, putting the blood on there, and 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 then waiting for the next year to do it all over again, because we have been cleansed once and for all, just as Jesus said to Peter, "Peter, you're clean, but not all. Just need your feet washed because of the daily grime that you've picked up." that needs to be cleansed every day, but you are my child. You are a living stone being put together in this great eternal temple that God has created. How does it feel to be a living stone? Next week, we'll look at the 27th chapter of uh, Exodus.